So occasionally you hear sports cars advertised because they can go from zero to 60 in so little time. Uh, I was instructed a while back to not be impressed by those claims because living around Chicago, we're familiar with the opposite. Not zero to 60, but 60 degrees to zero in almost no time whatsoever, which we're sort of experiencing at this moment, which is particularly galling since, you know, half of the congregation is in Naples, Florida, or Scottsdale, Arizona. I woke up, looked out the window, saw frost on my car. I'm like, oh, you're kidding me. But whatever. Here we are. And as it turns out, that uh, metaphor of a dropping temperature is a good one to set us up for what we're going to be walking through today. Because it happened in Jerusalem. And we're not talking about a, a dramatic temperature change, but a dramatic mood change from from the high highs of Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the, the processional, uh, the, the, the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem to crucify him just a few days later. It's a dramatic shift. And uh, this is Holy Week, so we are in the, at the beginning of that dramatic shift. So Holy Week includes uh, a couple days of note, uh, Maundy Thursday, Maundy is the Latin word for mandate. And it refers to the mandate that Jesus gave us around serving. So on Monday, Thursday, he washed the feet of the disciples. He, he transitioned the Passover celebration into Holy Communion on the day of the Last Supper, where he explained he was, in fact, the Paschal Lamb, that it had always been about him. And so he repositioned that. And, of course, he was betrayed uh, by Judas on, on that Maundy Thursday. So when he was having his feet washed, he gave this command, this mandate to his followers. We are to serve one another. So Maundy Thursday, and then we have, of course, Good Friday. And Good Friday, the name is a bit of a mystery. Uh, It's only called Good Friday in English. Every other language has something like Dark Friday, Black Friday, Sorrowful Friday, Mournful Friday. Nobody really has been able to explain to me why we call it Good Friday. Uh, I did read in one book that it was called uh, Good Friday because that was a contraction of God's Friday going to Good Friday. And I thought, uh, well, that makes sense, except it's not a contraction. You've actually added a letter. You haven't taken one out. So it is good for us. Good Friday is good for us because uh, on that day, right, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Jesus stands in our place. He takes upon himself the punishment for our sins. It's a good day for us. Uh, So we have Good Friday, and then, of course, we transition uh, into uh, Easter Saturday and then Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday. Um, So what we're going to do is we're going to walk through the last, uh, with with some readers and some songs, we're going to walk through the last days of, of Holy Week. It's, there's a lot around Holy Week. So half of John's gospel, a third of the synoptic gospels are all devoted to this week. Uh, and so there's just a lot that goes on in the context of this week. The Bible is really all about Jesus, right? The Old Testament points ahead to the New Testament. The, 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 the New Testament points to the gospels. The gospels point to this week. And in this week, it points, of course, to the crucifixion and resurrection. So we're going to walk through the last part of this week. And I just want to, I want to be sure you understand the context of what is, is going to be happening just before we begin 
the reading out of Mark. So Jesus is, uh, as he enters Jerusalem, is sort of the, the high water mark. It's a crescendo of his popularity. His popularity ebbs and flows over the three years of his ministry. When he wants, uh, when he is performing miracles, healing people, uh, feeding people, the crowds get big. And when the crowds get too big, uh, or when they become a little um, surly and they, wanna, they want him to do things he doesn't want to do, they want to appoint him a king early or something like that, he simply winnows the crowds by talking about the cost of following him, like what it looks like to be a disciple, and then lots of people leave. So it ebbs and flows during the course of his three years, but it is reaching an ultimate crescendo as he comes into Jerusalem uh, for the Passover. It's all perfectly timed because he is the Passover lamb. He is the perfect unblemished male who is going to be sacrificed just like the lamb was uh, way back when the Jews were freed uh, from Egyptian slavery, right? The, the last of those plagues was uh, the death of the firstborn. But if they took uh, a perfect male lamb and sacrificed it and used the blood to paint over the doorpost, then the angel of death passed over that house. And that was a placeholder for Jesus. And so he has timed this at the time of the Passover to come into Jerusalem. Exactly when they were instructed to bring in the lambs, Jesus is going to hit the gates. And so it all works out. There's a big, huge plan here. What you need to know is uh, he is, is not wanted there by anybody in a leadership position. So the Romans don't want Jesus showing up at Passover. You know, Pilate, who is the governor, Pilate who's been appointed by Caesar as the Roman leader of the area. Pilate is not normally in Jerusalem. He shows up for the Passover because it's such a volatile time. It is the mark of their independence. It's their July 4th. That all these people flood into Jerusalem to celebrate the fact that thousands of years ago, uh, God liberated them from their Egyptian captives. Now the problem is, they're now under Roman occupation. So you're having this party celebrating your independence, except, oh, guess what? We're not free. So it's a very volatile situation. So Pilate shows up to make sure there are no riots, there are no revolutions. So he doesn't want this this carpenter from Galilee who he's been hearing about, who nobody can control. He doesn't want this guy showing up. Additionally, the Jewish... Religious leaders don't want Jesus showing up, right? The Sanhedrin, uh, Herod, they don't want Jesus showing up because they can never control him. He always bests them. He's unpredictable. So they don't want Jesus showing up. The people want somebody to do something, right? And they think if anybody's going to do it, it's probably this guy from, from Galilee. Uh, they're waiting and they're tired of waiting for somebody who's going to reestablish the people of God and put them at the top of the food chain. So they're looking for somebody who's going to come in, overthrow Rome, elevate them, put them at the top. That's what they're expecting. Somebody to walk in the footsteps of David, fulfill the prophecies, elevate them. So the people are looking for somebody to do something. Now, it looks like Jesus is going to be their guy because he could have quietly slipped into Jerusalem. And this is before newspapers, before selfies, before Facebook posting. Nobody, people don't know what Jesus looks like. He could have just walked right into Jerusalem and nobody would have known. But 
he throws a parade, right? And he, he rallies the crowd, right? He is feeding their patriotic fervor. And he comes in on a donkey, which seems a little anticlimactic, except it was the fulfillment of prophecy that they were waiting for. Solomon, who had been David's son, followed in David's footsteps, Solomon, on his coronation day, had ridden into uh, Jerusalem on a donkey. So they know exactly what the statement Jesus is making. And they're, they're whipped into a frenzy. They're, they're putting cloaks down for him to walk on. It's the red carpet treatment. They're waving palm branches. Palm branches was sort of the revolutionary flag. It was the rebellion flag. Because it's not the Roman flag. It's the flag of the freedom and independence of, of Israel. So they're waving their flags. They're, everybody's excited about Jesus coming in. So it looks like to the Romans, this is exactly what we didn't want to happen. Except, after he gets in, he leaves the Romans alone. And he goes on Monday into the temple where he overturns the tables. And he, and he says, you turn this into a den of thieves, right? You're, you're, you got all this illegal uh, money exchanging going on. You, you force people to, to, to get your money to buy sacrifices. This is not God's plan. And so he overturns the tables. And then on Tuesday and Wednesday, when he comes back, he stands outside the temple and he teaches. And, and it, is a, it is a clear challenge to the temple. Because he, outside the temple, is forgiving people's sins and healing them. And he's saying, in essence, look, that building used to be something. I'm the new temple. I'm the intersection of God and man now. I'm where you come now. You want forgiveness of sins, it comes through me. right? Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll rebuild it. He's not talking about that building. He's talking about himself. He's challenging the whole system. And healing people, doing things that they can't do in the temple. So... So this is exactly what the Jewish religious leaders don't want. And it's also not what the people want, right? So he's disappointing everybody. The Romans don't like what he's done. The Jewish religious leaders don't like what he's done. And the people are going, enough already. We thought we were going to revolt. And you're not doing any of that. And, and you're talking about your kingdom not being in this world and all this crazy stuff. So... In the matter, in a matter of just a few days, he manages to disappoint pretty much everybody. And so the mood has dropped dramatically. And we're going to pick up now late in the week and, and read through his uh, crucifixion and his burial. You have a bulletin uh, that has, uh, that you can follow along in. And additionally, the words will be on the screen. So in previous years on Palm Sunday, we have often done something like this. The only part you had in previous years was to say, crucify him, which wasn't our idea. That's a, it's a service that's been set up and been in place for a long time. But the point of that is to say, that is our part in this story, right? We're, we're the rebellious ones. We're, we're the ones that forced Jesus to go to the cross. So symbolically, we say crucify him to sort of own that part. We're doing something different this year. You have more parts to read than just that. So you are the all. Wherever you see all, that would be you. So you want to read along. And what we're going to see is how the, the, the last days uh, of Christ's life before his crucifixion unfold. And I would just 
encourage you to be tracking along because it sure is going to look like things are going wrong. It was now two days before Passover and the festival of unleavened bread. The leading priests and the teachers of religious law were still looking for an opportunity to capture Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the Passover celebration, they agreed, or the people may riot. Meanwhile, Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon, a man who had previously had leprosy. While he was eating, a woman came in with a beautiful alabaster jar of expensive perfume made from essence of nard. She broke open the jar and poured the perfume over his head. Some of those at the table were indignant. Why was this expensive perfume wasted, they asked. It could have been sold for a year's wages, the money given to the poor. So they scolded her harshly, but Jesus replied, Leave her alone. Why criticize her for doing such a good thing to me? You will always have the poor among you, and you can help them whenever you want to. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could and has anointed my body for burial ahead of time. I tell you the truth, wherever the good news is preached throughout the world, this woman's deed will be remembered and discussed. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve disciples, went to the leading priest to arrange to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted when they heard why he had come, and they promised to give him money. So he began looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb is sacrificed, Jesus' disciples asked him, Where do you want us to go to prepare the Passover meal for you? So Jesus sent two of them into Jerusalem with these instructions. As you go into the city, a man carrying a pitcher of water will meet you. Follow him. At the house he enters, say to the owner, The teacher asks, Where is the guest room where I can eat the Passover meal with my disciples? He will take you upstairs to a large room that is already set up. That is where you should prepare our meal. So the two disciples went into the city and found everything just as Jesus had said, and they prepared the Passover meal there. In the evening, Jesus arrived with the twelve. As they were at the table eating, Jesus said, I tell you the truth. One of you eating with me here will betray me. Greatly distressed, each one asked in turn, Am I the one? He replied, Is one of you twelve who is eating from this bowl with me? For the Son of Man must die, as the Scriptures declared long ago. But how terrible it will be for the one who betrays him. It would be far better for that man if he had never been born. As they were eating, Jesus took some bread and blessed it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples, saying, Take it, for this is my body. And he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. He gave it to them, and they all drank from it, and he said to them, This is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people, it is poured out as a sacrifice for many. I tell you the truth, I will not drink wine again until the day I drink it new in the kingdom of God. 
Then he returned and found the disciples asleep. He said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you watch with me even for one hour? Keep watch and pray so that you will not give in to temptation. For the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Then Jesus left them again and prayed the same prayer as before. When he returned to them again, he found them sleeping. For they couldn't keep their eyes open. And they didn't know what to say. When he returned to them the third time, he said, Are you still sleeping and having your rest? Enough. The time has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let us be going. Look, my betrayer is here. And immediately, even as Jesus said this, Judas, one of the twelve disciples, arrived with a crowd of men armed with swords and clubs. They had been sent by the leading priests, the teachers of religious law, and the elders. The traitor, Judas, had given them a prearranged signal. You'll know which one to arrest when I greet him with a kiss. Then you can take him away under guard. As soon as they arrived, Jesus walked up to Jesus at once and said, Rabbi! And gave him the kiss. Then the others grabbed Jesus and arrested him. But one of the men with Jesus pulled out his sword and struck the high priest's slave, slashing off his ear. Jesus asked them, Am I some dangerous revolutionary that you come with swords and clubs to arrest me? Why didn't you arrest me in the temple? I was there among you, teaching every day. But these things are happening to fulfill what the scriptures say about me. Then all his disciples deserted him and ran away. One young man following behind was clothed only in a long linen shirt. When the mob tried to grab him, he slipped out of his shirt and ran away naked. They took Jesus to the high priest's home where the leading priests, the elders, and the teachers of religious law had gathered. Meanwhile, Peter followed him at a distance and went right into the high priest's courtyard. There he sat with the guards, warming himself by the fire. Inside, the leading priests and the entire high council were trying to find evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death, but they couldn't find any. Many false witnesses spoke against him, but they contradicted each other. Finally, some men stood up and gave this false testimony. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands. And in three days, I will build another made without human hands. But even they couldn't get their story straight. Then the high priest stood up before the others and asked Jesus, Well, aren't you going to answer these charges? What do you have to say for yourself? But Jesus was silent and made no reply. Then the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated in the place of power at God's right hand and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothing to show his horror and said, Why do we need other witnesses? You've all heard his testimony, his blasphemy. What is your verdict? And they all cried out, Guilty. He deserves deserves to die. Then some of them began to spit at him, and they blindfolded him and beat him with their fists. Prophesy to us, they jeered, and the guards slapped him as they took him away. Meanwhile, 
Peter was in the courtyard below. One of the servant girls who worked for the high priest came by and noticed Peter warming himself by the fire. She looked at him closely and said, But Peter denied it. I don't know what you're talking about. And he went out into the entryway. Just then, a rooster crowed. When the servant girl saw him standing there, she began telling the others. But Peter denied it again. A little later, some of the other bystanders confronted Peter and said, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. Peter swore. A curse on me if I'm lying. I don't know this man you're talking about. And immediately the rooster crowed the second time. Suddenly, Jesus' words flashed through Peter's mind. Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times that you even know me. And he broke down and wept. Very early in the morning, the leading priests, the elders, and the teachers of religious law, the entire high council met to discuss their next step. They bound Jesus, led him away, and took him to Pilate, the Roman governor. Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus replied, You have said it. Then the leading priests kept accusing him of many crimes, and Pilate asked him, Aren't you going to answer them? What about all these charges they are bringing against you? But Jesus said nothing, much to Pilate's surprise. Now, it was the governor's custom each year during the Passover celebration to release one prisoner, anyone the people requested. One of the prisoners at that time was Barabbas, a revolutionary who had committed murder in an uprising. The crowd went to Pilate and asked him to release a prisoner as usual. Would you like me to release to you this king of the Jews? For he realized by now that the leading priests had arrested Jesus out of envy. But at this point, the leading priest stirred up the crowd to demand the release of Barabbas instead of Jesus. Pilate asked them, Then what should I do with this man you call the king of the Jews? They shouted back, Crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed? But the mob roared even louder. Crucify him. So to pacify the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He ordered Jesus flogged with a lead-tipped whip then turned him over to the Roman soldiers to be crucified. The soldiers took Jesus into the courtyard of the governor's headquarters called the Praetorium and called out the entire regiment. They dressed him in a purple robe and they wove thorn branches into a crown and put it on his head. Then they saluted him and taunted, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him on the head with a reed stick, spit on him, and dropped to their knees in mock worship. When they were finally tired of mocking him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him again. Then they led him away to be crucified. A passerby named Simon, who was from Cyrene, was coming in from the countryside just then, and the soldiers forced him to carry Jesus' cross. Simon was the father of Alexander and Rufus. And they brought Jesus to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. They offered him wine drugged with myrrh, but he refused it. Then the soldiers nailed him to the cross. They divided his clothes and threw dice to decide who would get each piece. 
It was nine o'clock in the morning when they crucified him. A sign announced the charge against him. It read, King of the Jews. Two revolutionaries were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. The people passing by shouted abuse, shaking their heads in mockery. You said you were going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Well then, save yourself and come down from the cross. The leading priests and teachers of religious law also mocked Jesus. He saved others, but he can't save himself. Let this aside, this king of Israel, come down from the cross so we can see it and believe it. Even the men who were crucified with Jesus ridiculed him. At noon, darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. Then at three o'clock, Jesus called out with a loud voice. Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani. Which means, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they said, Listen, he's calling for the Elijah. One of them ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, holding it up to him on a reed stick so he could drink. Wait, let's see whether Elijah comes to take him down. Then Jesus uttered another loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the Roman officer who stood facing him saw how he had died, he exclaimed, This man truly was the Son of God. Some women were there watching from a distance, including Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph, and Salome. They had been followers of Jesus and had cared for him while he was in Galilee. Many other women who had come with him to Jerusalem were also there. This all happened on Friday, the day of preparation, the day before the Sabbath. As evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea took a risk and went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Joseph was an honored member of the high council, and he was waiting for the kingdom of God to come. Pilate couldn't believe that Jesus was already dead, so he called for the Roman officer and asked if he had died yet. The officer confirmed that Jesus was dead, so Pilate told Joseph he could have the body. Joseph bought a long sheet of linen cloth. Then he took Jesus' body down from the cross, wrapped it in the cloth, and laid it in a tomb that had been carved out of the rock. Then he rolled a stone in front of the entrance. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where Jesus' body was laid. So as we were getting ready to read this, I encouraged you to be asking yourself this question. What is going wrong here? It sure looks like things are going wrong. The people that were there thought things were going wrong. On Saturday, everybody thought everything had gone wrong. But I want to submit to you, absolutely nothing went wrong. What happened, what unfolded, is exactly what God had promised would unfold. 
Everything was going just according to plan, and it perfectly fulfilled the laws of justice and the requirements of love. See, um, we're broken. We are sinful. We have fallen short of God's standards, right? We've got issues. They go deep within us. It's not just flesh wounds. We're broken people. Pride, anger, lust, greed, envy. We've got all kinds of issues. We fall short. There has to be payment for our sin. A judge that doesn't exercise justice but who lets guilty people go free isn't considered a good judge, isn't considered a kind person. They're considered weak and corrupt. Guilty people are expected uh, to have to atone for their guilt, to go to prison, to pay the penalty. God is holy. He is righteous. He is just. In order to remain just, there has to be a penalty for our sin. However, God is loving. And so in a way that is just remarkably unique, God arranges things to perfectly satisfy the requirements of justice and also to perfectly demonstrate his love. And so he sends his son, our Savior, to die in our place. And he pulls this all together. And it happens, it unfolds exactly as all the prophecies pointed uh, hundreds of years earlier. Everything works out exactly according to the plan. It looked like things were out of control. (laughs) But they were never out of control. What happened is exactly what God set out to do. And I would submit to you that that had it gone differently, and we can speculate as to how God might have worked things out differently, but had things gone any differently, we would never be able to comprehend the, the great love God had for us. Right? God's love could never be more fully on display than it would be on display with what happened. That he would, he would send his own son to die in our place. So everything worked out exactly according to plan. He has everything under control. And what happens on Good Friday is that the requirements of justice and and an illustration of love are perfectly fulfilled in the death of Jesus Christ.